Would you pray with me? Lord, we praise you this morning. You, you are the one with the great name because you are Savior and you are Messiah. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that our, our praise to you would be received well and that you would hear our hearts and that we would truly be praising you this morning through our song. And we pray that as we open your word, you would speak to us, Lord, and that the preaching of your word this morning would reflect your heart. Would you speak to us through your word? Would you penetrate our hearts this morning, Lord, with your truth? And would you let us walk out of this place this morning changed because of your word? Pray this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, we are in the final month of our study of the book of Acts, and I know what you're thinking. Already? I can't believe. I know. It's been a whole year in the book of Acts. We're coming to our last month, but it's been an awesome book to study. It's been a really good book for us in our first year here to see what happens when people continue the ministry of Jesus Christ to watch regular people filled with the Holy Spirit doing incredible things because God is a great God and he's going to continue his ministry even after Jesus is gone. And for the last half of the book of Acts, we've been following the ministry of Paul. And Paul's had a rough go of it lately. These last few days in particular have been difficult for Paul. If you haven't been here, let me just recap briefly. He was beaten nearly to death and then rescued out of that by soldiers who were then going to beat him themselves until God rescued him out of that. And then he was standing trial before the Jewish authorities, and they nearly tore him to pieces until God rescued him out of that and delivered him to the governor, Governor Felix, in front of whom he will stand trial. And now we find Paul waiting. He's just waiting, waiting for his trial, waiting for his accusers to arrive and to accuse him in front of the judge. And he's waiting to see now how God will rescue him out of this situation. And he knows that God's going to rescue him because he showed up and told him, Paul, don't worry, I've got this. I'm in control and you are going to get to Rome. I'm going to get you there because I need you to be my witness in Rome as well. So he's waiting to see how God will deliver him. And he's waiting for his trial. Now, if you have your Bible here this morning, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 24? That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to cover the entire chapter. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we brought one for you. You're welcome. They are in the aisle here. You're welcome to get up and grab one. If you would like one and you're a long way from one, you can just raise your hand. We'll pass it down to you. If both of those feel uncomfortable to you, you can just listen, but know that they're there. And know that they're there as our gift to you. So if you would like a copy of God's Word, you're welcome to take that home with you. We'd love for you to do that. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4. I should probably turn there too. Acts chapter 24. If you're using our Bible, we're going to be on page 933. It's good to remember that what we're going to look at this morning is different than a conversation or a sermon. What we're going to look at this morning is a trial, so it follows a pretty specific format, one that's probably familiar to us if you've watched any courtroom shows. The standard format for this, for the prosecution who's bringing the accusations against Paul, would be this. They're going to start with an introduction. 
They're going to sort of explain what's going on. Then they're going to state the facts of the case. Then they're going to provide any evidence. And then they're going to tell the judge what conclusion he needs to draw from that evidence. That's what a standard trial would look like. And that's what we're actually going to see brought against Paul here in Acts chapter 24. So read with me, starting in the first verse. We're going to read the prosecution of Paul. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, and here it is, here's the prosecution, so look for those four things. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude." But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So Paul is waiting for his accusers to arrive, and they do arrive. Ananias, the high priest, comes to bring charges against Paul, except he doesn't bring the charges against Paul. He's hired a big-time lawyer instead to present the charges against Paul. So here they come with a spokesman, a lawyer, to present the case against Paul, Tertullus. And Tertullus has six verses to make this prosecution. Six verses to cover those four things that we talked about. And how does he use that? He's got six verses to make the accusation stick. Six verses to convince Felix to turn Paul over to Ananias so that Ananias can have Paul executed because that's surely what they're attempting to do. So how does he use them? Well, he uses the first three verses to butter up the judge. To just, it's just pure flattery for half of his time. It's just telling Felix what a great guy he is. And the real problem with that is that none of what he's saying is actually true. Felix, the governor, historically is a horrible man. He's cruel. He's said to be governed by greed and lust and a desire for power. He's incredibly corrupt. A historian describes him this way. He started his life as a slave. He was freed, and he and his brother both became powerful men in Rome. One historian says this of Felix, a master of cruelty and lust, who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. His current wife, who will come into the picture later in the chapter, is his third one, who he lured away from another king. He lured her away because he was more powerful than her current husband, and he thought she was really pretty, and she thought he was really powerful. It's a really beautiful love story of how they came together. This is his third wife. His willingness to accept bribes and his willingness to overlook corruption for his own personal gain has led to all kinds of problems in his rule, problems that will get him out of office by the end of chapter 24. He is not a good guy. These problems have specifically rained down on the Jewish people. So imagine the irony of what Tertullus is saying to him as he begins this prosecution. 
Certainly Ananias and those who have come with him, they understand the strategy. Make the guy like us, and then he'll hear what we have to say. But any Jew who's listening to this would be shocked by this description of Felix as a man who has been good and brought great reform and for whom they're very grateful because that's not true at all. The irony of this is then what they're going to say about Paul because after this introduction to Felix, after he kind of butters him up a little bit, he brings the statement of the facts against Paul. And here are the facts. Verse 5, he says, For we found this man to be a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. In one verse, he summarizes the facts of the case against Paul. He said, you, Felix, you're a man of great leadership and great foresight. We love you, and we don't want to waste any of your valuable time, but this guy is a problem. This guy, Paul, is going to be a, he's a plague. He's, he's a cancer for your people. He's a troublemaker. He causes riots, not just here, but everywhere he goes, he causes riots, which is sort of true. Not really Paul causing riots, right? But everywhere Paul goes, there are riots, it seems. Not just here, everywhere. And he's the ringleader of this sect called the Nazarenes, which Tertullus makes out to be like this, this uh, terrorist organization, not just some offshoot of Judaism, as most people would have understood it. So those are the facts that they present. Paul is a rebellious agitator and a danger to Rome. That's the charge that they're bringing against Paul. It's the best case that they can make before Felix because they can't bring a religious charge in a public court, in a Roman court. They can't accuse Paul of what they want to kill him for before Felix, so they have to make him believe he's a danger to Rome so that he will turn them over to them and they can kill him for the real reasons why they don't like him. That's the idea. And then verse 6, they bring the evidence against Paul. Here's the proof. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Narrowly escaped Paul's profaning the temple. Now that's not true, but it's also pretty shrewd. Because how does Paul disprove this? How does Paul disprove that he did not not profane the temple? He, they say he didn't do it. We caught him before he did it. So how does Paul disprove it? How do I prove I didn't try to do it? Because that's actually what they're accusing him for. That's the evidence that they bring, that he tried to profane the temple. So we have the introduction. We're going to butter him up. We're going to bring the facts. This guy is a rebellious agitator, and here's the evidence. He tried to defame the temple. So then they give the conclusion, which is if you just talk to him, Felix, you'll realize that everything that we're saying is true. And then everyone who's come with Tertullus The high priest and everyone who's come along, they said, this is all true. We affirm everything he just said. Paul is a problem. You need to do something about it. Now, here's the reason that matters. Felix cares what they think because the people that have come with Tertullus, Ananias, and all of these other people are people of influence within, like under his reign. And here's what happens when you're Felix. When things get crazy, you get in trouble. So your job is... Keep everything calm. Keep the peace. And if everything's peaceful, you're cool. When things go crazy, you're in trouble. So Felix has a vested interest in making sure that things go well. And basically what they've said is, Felix, you're a great guy, and we know you don't want any trouble. 
right? <clears throat> and this guy's trouble, so let us take care of it. That's the prosecution. Then it's Paul's turn. And here's the defense starting in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul's introduction is a little less flowery. It's a little more accurate. He basically says, Felix, you've done this for a while. I have a feeling you're going to see exactly what's going on here. He's a judge. He's been governing this place for a while. He knows what he's doing. And Paul knows what he's doing. And I think Paul knows that Felix is going to see this for what it really is. Verse 11, he's going to defend. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. So he starts his defense by saying, Felix, look, here's what you can prove. Someone in your position can easily find out, I have only been here for 12 days, a bunch of which I've been in prison, by the way, but I haven't been here very long. And when they found me, they didn't find me doing any of the things that they've just said I was doing. Here's what you can't find evidence of, anything they just said. There's no evidence for any of what they're accusing me of. And then he gives a confession, which is an odd thing to do in your defense. Verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Here's what they said, Felix, that is true. I worship God according to the way. Now, they want to make that sound dangerous, but the truth is we worship the same God. I believe the same thing that's written in the law, the same thing that's written in the prophets. We both agree that there will be a resurrection of the dead, not just believers, but of the just and the unjust, the good and the bad. Everyone will stand before God as the ultimate judge someday. We all believe that. So as much as they want you to believe that I'm different, I'm not that different from they are. Because I believe that's true, I'm doing my best to live my life before God and before man with a clear conscience. That's it. That's my whole deal. That's my motivation, Felix. Not quite as dangerous as they would lead you to believe. Then verse 17, he continues. Now after several years... I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. So Paul just kind of brings Felix up to speed. Here's the deal. I've been away from Jerusalem for a long time, and I came here to worship for that purpose. I came here to bring an offering, Felix. That's why I was here. And when they found me, I wasn't surrounded by a crowd. I wasn't causing a problem. I was actually purified in the temple. And the guys who found me there can tell you that. No, wait, they're not here. 
the witnesses to this aren't even here to make their case against me. Where are those guys? They should probably be here, don't you think? Now it's Paul's turn to be shrewd because under Roman law, to bring a charge against somebody and then to abandon it would essentially say they didn't think that there was any merit to the case. That may not be true, but the people who found Paul in the temple are not there. They're not here to make the case against Paul. He says, if I really did something wrong, it seems like it would be best for you to hear from the people who actually found me doing it, but they're not here. So that's fine. Instead, let these guys tell you what I did wrong when I stood before them when I was on trial before the Jewish authorities. I can't think of anything I did wrong except to say that I believe in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, I'm quite sure that's what I said that got them all worked up and had them try to tear me to pieces. But that kind of seems like a religious thing to me, doesn't it? See what Paul has done? He's just unraveled their case very carefully, very shrewdly. He's done a good job, not only of defending himself, but of making it clear to Felix that what he's really being accused of is their religious differences and not any sort of sedition against Rome. If we have any dispute, it's a religious one. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and they disagree. That's kind of the nature of our problem and our disagreement. So we've heard from the prosecution, we've heard from the defense, and now we get the verdict in verse 22. Look with me there. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to any of his needs. So the verdict comes in, and the verdict is no verdict. Delay. Hung jury, sort of, except that it's one guy. There is a tremendous amount of pressure on Felix to convict Paul and to turn him over to the Jews. A tremendous amount of political pressure for him to do this. But the case is pretty clear. And Felix doesn't really feel like he can do that either. So he just says, I need more information. I'll wait for Lysias to come down. Well, we already know what he thinks. He wrote a letter to Felix saying exactly the same thing. I find no reason to kill the guy, let alone even have him in prison. I don't know what he's done wrong. And I think Felix probably feels the same way, but in order to keep the peace, he just doesn't make a decision. Because to make a decision either way is going to cause a problem. And the delay might be inconvenient for Ananias and the Jewish authorities, and it's certainly inconvenient for Paul, who's going to be in prison while they wait, but it doesn't create an immediate problem for Felix. So he's just going to wait and take the easy way out, and then he's going to play the situation and find out what kind of personal gain he can get from it. What is the best way for me to manage this situation for my own good? Politically or financially, I'm going to find a way to make this work for me. But right now, making a decision would be inconvenient. Then look what happens. Verse 24. We're going to finish the chapter here. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Two years? That is crazy. Remember where we started with Paul waiting? Waiting for his accusers to arrive. Waiting to see how God would deliver him. Knowing that God was going to deliver him because he said as much. I doubt he anticipated this result. Two years. Felix seems confused about what to do. Doesn't he? He wants to hear more about what Paul has to say. In fact, only a few days after the trial, he brings Paul in with his wife in the room and says, essentially, okay, Paul, tell me the story. What's your deal? Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about you. But he's not really in a hurry to make a decision. And eventually, while he's waiting for Paul to maybe pay him off, while Paul waits and waits for him to make a decision, eventually his time runs out. Because what's happened is there's an uprising of a revolt And Felix's response is to go in and kill everybody and take their stuff because that works out well for him in the immediate moment. But news of that gets back to Rome and they take him out and they replace him with somebody else. He's no longer fit to lead, so Felix is gone. But on his way out, he leaves Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. Now to me, in this whole chapter, these last few verses are probably the most compelling To me, these last few verses, they're describing what happens to Paul after the trial. And I think it's easy for us to just skip over them because the trials, there's so much detail in there. Luke tells us all about it. And these kind of read like a summary, like it'd be easy for us to just glance past them. Paul's trial is important. It's part of what Luke is telling us in the narrative of Paul and how God is using him and what God is doing through his life. And there's something really significant in his trial about Paul's focus on the resurrection. He brings it up a lot. Did you notice that in his defense? He talks about the resurrection of the dead a lot. Clearly, Paul lives his life in the hope of his eventual resurrection, of being with God in glory. And he banks on it. He lives his life that way, and I'll show you how in just a second. Here's the other part of the resurrection that's important. He doesn't just say, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe in the resurrection of everyone, the just and the unjust, that everyone will face God, their ultimate judge, someday. And he clearly lives his life in light of that. Clearly lives with the hope of his own resurrection and his life with Christ, but he clearly lives with the idea that everybody is going to have to face God in judgment someday. So he boldly proclaims the gospel. He wants everyone to know what Jesus has done. He wants everybody to understand the truth of what they face at the end of their life. And it defines his worldview. Here's how we know. Here's how the worldview affects Paul's response. He's just been denied justice by a corrupt governor, a corrupt judge, because it was the easiest thing to do. That's why he was denied justice in his case. And now he has to sit around and wait for Felix to decide what he wants to do or get what he wants, either some political expediency or some money from Paul. He only has to wait a few days before Felix shows up with his wife and says, tell me the story, and now, if you're Paul, what do you say? 
If you're Paul, what is your response to Felix when he says, Paul, talk to me. What do you say to a man that you know to be cruel and corrupt? A man who can set you free or can turn you over to your accusers who will certainly kill you. Immediately, what do you say? What is the higher value in Paul's worldview? My freedom or his eternity? Which has higher value? Clearly to Paul, Felix's eternity has a higher value than his freedom. Paul has the attitude of, hey, I'm already free. What is the worst they can do to me? I'm a child of God. Paul has the attitude that we see in Matthew when he says, don't fear the one that can kill you. Fear the one who after you're dead has the power to throw you into hell. Life and death is not the issue. Eternity is the issue. And Paul says, what do I have to worry about? I'm a child of God. This is where I see a direct and immediate application of the passage in my own life, and this is where I experience deep conviction. We talked about this just a few weeks ago, what it means to boldly share our faith. And we don't get Paul's direct speech here. Luke doesn't quote Paul. But I just want to point out, when Paul gets a chance to talk to Felix, what does he talk to him about? Look there. Verse 25. It says he talked to him about faith in Jesus, and he talked to him about what? Righteousness and self-control and the impending judgment of God. Now, why would he choose those things to talk to Felix about? He's speaking directly to the sin issue in Felix's life. He says, you want to know about Jesus? Jesus is the answer to your problem, Felix. Oh, what's, do you know what your problem is? Your problem is sin. You are not a righteous man, Felix. You lack self-control. <laughs> That's essentially what he's saying. I wish we had a direct quote from Luke because I, I would love to know exactly what Paul said. You're an unrighteous man, who lacks self-control, you are rebelling against God's law. But there's great news in that. There's great news in that, Felix, because Jesus says he'll take all of that away. He'll just erase it. In fact, he's already done all of that work on your behalf. All you have to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And the choice is yours. But everybody's going to be judged, Felix. Everyone's going to stand before a judge, the ultimate judge, and they're going to have to give an answer. And some of us are going to stand before that judge innocent. Not because we're innocent and not because we've done, lived a good life, but because we have a savior. We have an advocate. We have a big time lawyer who will stand before that judge and say, they're innocent. You can take my word for it. They're innocent. He's with me. See, Paul boldly shares the gospel with Felix until Felix says, stop, stop it, (laughs) we're done. We can talk about this later. I don't want to hear this anymore. And Felix keeps bringing him back and keeps hearing from Paul. But we never hear of any choice or decision that's made by Felix in that. Here's why I find this so convicting. And this is the thing we talked about a few weeks ago, about our inability or our unwillingness to share the gospel with other people, to tell this story that Paul is telling to Felix. Not because our life hangs in the balance like Paul's. It's not a life or death thing for us. It's usually like a social thing. And that's usually enough to keep us from being bold and sharing our faith. Personally, I find this convicting for the following reason. I have a friend overseas right now who's battling a serious illness, and the situation is not good. 
prognosis is not good at all. And I have been praying earnestly for this person. Praying earnestly that God would heal them. I'm praying for them because they asked me to pray. Not a believer and asked me to pray. And I've shared that when I pray for them, I'm not just sending them positive thoughts, but I'm praying a real prayer to a real God that I think has real power to answer it. I've said that. And I've shared what I'm praying. And I said, I'm going to pray for specific encouragement for you that could not come from anywhere else so that you would know that it's from God and you would know that he is real. And I got an email saying, I've had specific encouragement and here's what it has looked like. And I said, that's a direct answer to my prayer for you. Here's what I have not written. I have not written a clear gospel presentation to that person. Five or six different times I've sat down and I've started writing it. Five or six different times for a thousand different reasons, I haven't sent it. I haven't done it. Here's why. There may be very valid reasons for us to not share the gospel in a certain context or at a certain time with a certain person, but that's not the case for me. It's just not. That's not my situation. This is just a friendship that means a lot to me. That's the truth. That is the really uncomfortable truth. I don't want to mess this up because my friendship with this person means a lot to me. And here's the horrible truth that I was faced with this week preparing this sermon and thinking about that friend. And I have to own this truth. I care more about what they think of me than what they think of Jesus. I care more about what they think of me than what they think of Jesus. That's the truth. And the minute I put that in my sermon, I wrote an email because I had to. God is not asking that much of us. He's already done the work. He's already saved us. He's paid the price. What he asks is that we would be a a bold and a faithful witness to tell the story of what he's done. That we would have a worldview that says the kingdom is a higher priority than myself, than my comfort or my reputation. That we would be bold to share wherever we are and whoever we're talking to. Because when Paul has an opportunity to share, he shares. That's the example that he's left for us. It might cost him two years of his life in prison. It might cost him his life, but you are never going to convince Paul that it's not worth it. You're never going to convince Paul that his comfort or his reputation or his life are more important than Jesus and the message that he has for a world that's lost without him. No one is going to convince Paul that it's not a big deal, that each and every person that we meet has an opportunity to stand before God innocent of all charges Because we have an advocate who will stand before us and say, that one is with me. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you think, that's what I need. So you got a lot of baggage and a lot of messed up stuff in my life and I need someone that will take it away and I need someone that will stand before God for me and say, they're with me and it's okay because I paid for it already. And if that's you, we would love to introduce you to that guy because he works for free. When Paul has an opportunity to share, he shares. So the question for then for the church is, when you have an opportunity to share, what do you do? What do you do? 
here's what I want to ask you. A couple weeks ago, I asked you to think of someone in your life who you know that doesn't know the Lord. I just encourage you to think of them, pray for them. I'm going to do a little bit, something a little bit different this week. I'm going to ask you to write it down. You have your connection card this morning, and I'm going to ask you to take that out. If you have questions about what we're talking about this morning, I'd love to hear your questions on there. If you have a prayer request, you can share that with us. But here's how I want to use this connection card this morning. I want to ask you for one name, the name of somebody that you know who doesn't know Jesus. Someone who doesn't know the story, and I want you to write it down if you will do this. So don't write it down yet, because there's a condition. Here's the condition. Write it down if you're going to do this. Pray for that person. Pray for that person that they would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then I want you to feel distressed for that person. Allow yourself to feel distress for them. And then I want you to tell them the gospel. Not invite them to church. Not give them a Bible. Tell them the gospel. If you will do that, write that name down. And I will pray for your friend, and we will pray for your friend, and we will join together to reach people for the gospel, because that's why we're here. Here's what I'm not doing or asking this morning. I'm not giving you a timeline for sharing. There may be an appropriate or inappropriate time, so I'm not giving you a timeline. That's, that's for you and the Lord to figure out. I'm not saying it's your job to bring them to faith. It's not your job. It's God's job. That's his work to do. Your job to be faithful, Okay? I'm not asking you to bring them to church. I don't care if they ever step foot in here. That's not the point. I'm asking you to tell them about Jesus because they need to know. I'm saying let's do what we came here to do. And if you write down a name, I will pray for your friend and you can pray for mine because I haven't heard back from that email. And it's hard. I know it's hard. Let's do it together as a family. Let's tell people about Jesus together. That's what we're here for. That's the example of Paul. Let's care more about what people think of Jesus than what people think of us. Can we make that commitment as a church, as children of God? That's the question for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you're a great God and you've given us a great example and for some reason this is so hard for us. So would you help us to own the story of the gospel, that we would be so overwhelmed by your goodness to us and your love for us that we could not help ourselves but to share it with the people that we love. We know people, God, who don't know you, and so I just pray that you would work right now for these names that are being written down right now, that you would start to stir in their hearts and that you might encourage us by allowing us to see people come into your kingdom. We love you. We praise you. You're amazing. Would you hear our praise now as we sing in your name? Amen.